Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is going live soon, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. Now on to the show. Moving in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving iron. Good morning and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast Market Rundown with Sean Hackett. Sean, how you doing this morning? Doing great. Good deal. Good. Sean is with Hack Financial, and you've probably seen him on here a couple times. He's going to be a, a contributor here for the market rundown uh, a couple days a week. So, Sean, um, I just wanted to, you know, you sent out, you have some great stuff on your website, and I was kind of reading through some stuff you sent out uh, via email here over the weekend, and, and you brought up a good point that I, I think I, I overlooked uh, when we were, when, when we started looking at China, what that looks like. But, you know, China went from kind of being like, you know, we're going to stonewall you, we're going to hang out, we're going to wait, we're not going to really cooperate with you, we're going to keep doing, you know, we're going to do stuff, but then we're not going to do stuff type of thing back and forth. And here in the last 30 days, they've been just kind of rapid pace, like we really got to get this figured out, we're going to work with you as much as we can, you know, we want to, we want to do what we're going to do. So you, you brought something up in a, in your smart money report talking about inflation in China and what that looks like. So talk about that a little bit and how the, that correlates to what, what we see happening with the China, the China tri- trade deal. Well, one of the important things um, regarding any trade deal is the currency relationship. History says that whenever the U.S. has put pressure on one of their partners, um, the other the partner devalue their currency and ruin any advantage that we can get on them. So the Chinese have been printing $30 trillion. It's just an astonishing amount of money over the last, since 2008, to keep their economy going, to keep themselves afloat. And it's starting to cause some pretty important inflationary, uh, domestic inflationary pressures on their agricultural production. So for example, Milk production has been down five years in a row. We know that their uh, grain production has been falling for five years in a row because the costs of production continue to escalate while prices continue to languish. So what the U.S. has been trying to do as part of a trade deal is say to them, look, if we're going to work out a deal with you, you just can't go out there and drop your currency 20 or 30% and ruin any advantage that we've just negotiated. And so when it looks to us, if you look at some of the talk that Mnuchin uh, has been talking about with this memorandum of understanding regarding the currency, it appears that there's something called the Plaza Accord II. Uh, but for those who don't know, Plaza Accord was, a, was an agreement made in 1985 when we were having a trade war with Japan that devalued the U.S. dollar against the yen in order to make trade more fair. And we think... What's happening here is the Chinese want to devalue their NIMBY. They need to do it. They want to do it. But we're not going to let them do it uh, if we're going to have a trade deal. So what I think is happening here is that the U.S. and the Chinese are setting up an agreement like the Plaza Accord in 1985 to devalue the U.S. dollar relative against all of the but maintain the exchange with the Chinese constant. That gives us 
what we want, which is fair trade with the Chinese, and the Chinese get what they want, which is a devaluation of their currency against other countries. And of course, a weaker dollar, I'm sure as you and your listeners know, is always creates inflationary pressures in commodities and agricultural markets. So we think that's what's going on here. And it could finally set off the U.S. dollar into a tailspin downward and bring in some, some currency inflation we haven't seen since QE started in 2010. Okay, so what, what would be the ultimate outcome of that? I mean, what would, how is that, obviously, when we're, when we're talking about uh, a lower value on the U.S. dollar, our exports are going to be more attractive to, um, agricultural exports are going to be more attractive to the, uh, to the rest of the world, right? We're going to be way more competitive than what we are now. But what does that look like for, for the domestic United States? Well, you're right. I mean, what it means is that we're only going to sell a lot of product to the Chinese as part of a trade deal, but we're going to sell a lot more product to everybody else because we're going to have a competitive advantage with a weaker dollar. Um, so what that means is, is that the, the five, six bear market and agricultural commodities that U.S. producers have been suffering under will start to go away. We'll start to see firming prices. We'll start to see better exports. We'll start to see tightening stocks to usage. And, and farmers, U.S., North American farmers will start to see you know, margins again where they can start putting equity back in their businesses. Really positive uh, having a weaker U.S. dollar against a trade deal at the same time. So we, we really, it would create all-time record U.S. exports of that products for many, many years. It would be a sustainable period of increased demand. Right on. Okay, so now <clears throat> a couple of that with, uh, with what we see happening in, in, the, uh, in, in the energy market with, with the U.S. being a... Uh, a more or less a net import or a net exporter of, of, uh, of oil now. How's that going to affect what we see happening there? I mean, that's got to give a boost to that market as well. Well, yes. I mean, you have to remember, if they're going to want the key thing that President Trump wants to see out of a trade deal is the U.S. trade deficit with the Chinese going down. It can't go down as much as he would like just buying agricultural products. You're going to have to buy crude and natural gas. And by the way, the Chinese import massive amounts of both. So we would expect that any part of the trade deal wouldn't just be agriculture. We would also significant imports of crude oil, U.S. crude oil, and U.S. natural gas. And so energy prices would also uh, trend much, much higher. And of course, higher energy prices are a wind under sales of all ag markets as Energy is a very important cost factor in the cost of production. So it would be definitely limiting the energy markets as well. Okay. This morning, I've read some articles over the weekend, um, the last part of the week, and then I've read some, you know, listened to some stuff this morning uh, as I'm getting ready for this. You know, ethanol is one of those things that, that really has, has driven the U.S. corn market more than anything else. And not so much the ethanol fuel, but the distiller's grains and, and the byproducts that come from ethanol products. Um, what, what's your what's your take on ethanol right now? I mean, long term, you look out there, and with the amount of money and technology that's being poured into electric vehicles and those kind of things, what's your feel for ethanol? You know, short term and long term, as we look at we see right now. Long term, and we've had this this view for quite some time. Long term, we don't not see much of a future for ethanol in the United States in the long term, meaning we think we're going to be on a constant down would swing in terms of ethanol usage, especially made from corn. We may still have ethanol in the country. We feel there's other methodologies that are much, much more attractive to use than corn. The only reason why we use corn you know, many years ago, 
and too much of it, and looking for a way to use it. On the flip side, however, the Chinese have embraced ethanol because they import so much crude oil, so much natural gas, and they use so much coal. Now they're looking for alternative fuels, and they've decided to be able to go after ethanol. And they've been producing a tremendous amount of ethanol from corn, and they're depleting their corn stocks fairly dramatically. So they're going to need not only more ethanol, but they're going to need more corn at least over the next five to ten years as part of their plan of escalating ethanol as a major energy source for them. And so while we see a declining view for ethanol in the U.S., we think that the Chinese import U.S. ethanol will make up the difference and actually could create a net benefit for a while, especially in the next five years. So we have to say, in aggregate, the ethanol story is still very bullish, but shifting away from domestic over to the Chinese. Gotcha. Okay. So there's a. You still feel like the like the the ethanol industry will have a place just because of the byproducts it gets for. Um, the protein and stuff that it creates with, for for the livestock markets? Without a doubt that the you know, distilled grain has become a key feed ingredient and it will continue to be. And that has been the saving grace for the ethanol industry for you know quite some time and it will continue to be. But so yeah, there's still a future. You know, it's, I, would, I don't want to be a groom and do it all. Thank goodness the Chinese have started to go after ethanol. Um, and uh, we think it's going to create a second wave of opportunity. Um, you know, for the U.S., but we don't think it's a forever deal. We think the Chinese will also, at some point, uh, see the light and, and shift their economy to something different. But for at least the next five or ten years, their consumption of ethanol, their focus on ethanol, distillers, grain, and corn will continue to brighten the prospects for U.S. ethanol producers for at least another five or ten years. So we think there's another window of opportunity, but we wouldn't want to we wouldn't want to bet on it for maybe beyond the next ten years. So we think. Those are the that need to have a nexus strategy beyond that. Right on. Okay. All right. So one more article I want to talk about. Um, it feels like the uh, <clears throat> the lid has popped off of the Asian swine or you know, African swine flu in in China right now, and it's kind of spread across uh, a big bulk of Asia. Now it's we're looking at you know Belarus and and, and Bulgaria and, and Eastern Europe and those areas where it's kind of now it's starting to kind of rear its ugly head. Um, you look at what we have in the U.S. as far as, as pork goes. Um, yeah, we have a big supply of that stuff. Do you feel like some of the traders are looking at that with a little bit of a cautionary perspective, waiting to see if anything comes from to, or comes to the U.S. that could affect the U.S. hog market? And that's why we're not seeing such a such a maybe a, maybe some some risk premium built into that market. Well, we did surge. When we first detected African swine fever in August of last year, we did have a big surge as the market was expecting this demand to come, and it hasn't come. And so we've seen this fairly large sell-off. But the reason it hasn't come is you have to think of it this way. The Chinese, in order to eradicate African swine fever, need to slaughter and liquidate a tremendous amount of their herd in order to get their hands around it. That's what has to be done. So when we look at what's the... the the reduction in herds uh, over the last uh, 30 days, anyway, you know, we're down, you know, just dramatic, dramatic numbers. Um, and now, and so what happens is the, the Chinese supply of pork is being flooded into the domestic market. There, they don't need any pork right now, um, 
And, and so long as they're in liquid mode, which they will be for quite a little while longer, there's very little reason why they want to come to the U.S. to buy our pork. Now, having said that, if you think about droughts, how droughts create per liquidation, when the droughts are over, then the supply vacuum comes and prices take off. We see the back half of the year, especially the fourth quarter, when that liquidation is over, and then their herd will be shrunk down, and then they'll have to try to rebuild it, and they'll have a massive supply vacuum, and will come in, we think, with a tsunami of demand for U.S. products. So we think it's a back half story, and it could be a wild, wild period coming up, but we want to caution that we don't yet see that the reason for that to happen, at least it's, you know, back half, let's say summertime is when we think we can see the first part of that happening. So in the meantime, we think the hog market is probably going to bounce around here waiting and assimilating when that exact time is going to be. So we're bullish to back half, still cautionary the first half. Right. Okay, so now the other thing, if you look at what wheat's done over the last, you know, couple weeks, you know, we had, had a pretty good run of wheat there for a while. Wheat was kind of the, the kind of the catalyst of the grain market. Now you think, look at the last couple weeks and what you see is, um, you know, wheat is just, you know, don't kick a man when he's down unless it's wheat, man. They just, it's just been getting beat up. So what's your take on the wheat market and where do you see that headed for this week? Well, we live in the global market. Everything is connected now. It used to be, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you could look at a few things and get it right. What really happened was that rice prices in Asia crashed. And rice and wheat are interconnected. They're the two primary food sources for half the world population to survive. And so when, when rice crashes, it leads a significant amount of demand away from wheat and over to rice as a cheaper food item. And so what started to happen is that that led to a crash in wheat prices in Europe, which then spilled over to a kind of a mini wheat crash in U.S. prices. And so this, this interconnectivity of Asia reverberated to the U.S. Having said that, uh, high quality wheat, when we look at supply and demand, is extremely tight, and we feel that prices overshot, and they, they overreacted to what happened in Europe, and we saw, actually saw some pretty significant reversals um, in things like Minneapolis wheat and in the U.S. rice futures market that suggest that maybe the worst is over, and that we probably, you know, kind of like said, overdid it, and that a pretty important low probably was made last week, see prices burning again, at least for higher quality wheat, which we think is going to continue to be a great story, especially with the challenging spring planting season coming out. Right on. All right, Sean, well, plenty of stuff to talk about here, plenty of stuff to be aware of, and plenty of stuff to keep track of. If folks want to reach out to you and ask you questions or maybe uh, pick your brain about some of your smart money reports or some of the white papers on your website, where would they do that at? The website's the best place to go, which is Hack It. H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com, kinds of information on sample reports, white papers, and description of our services to see what we do may be of value to your listeners. All right, you can find Moving Iron Podcast on the Global Ag Network at Moving Iron LLC on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can also watch these videos that we're watching here live on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and YouTube Live as well. So, uh, Sean, till Wednesday, take care of yourself and enjoy that warm Florida sun. I certainly will. It's, it's been nice. Thanks, Casey. Take care of yourself, Sean. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. Remember, if you want to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com.
You can also visit the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Here you can find Morning Market Roundup with Chip Nellinger and Angie Setzer. Also, Tax Moves with Glenn Birnbaum. Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is going live soon, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. You'll be able to hear Dryline Farmer Podcast, Girls Talk Ag, The Topsoil Podcast, Ag News Daily, Working Cows, Heifer Please, Throwback Iron, and Ask Agnes. Please visit movingironllc.com. Here you can find information, details, and updates for the 2019 Moving Iron Summit in Nashville, Tennessee. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe at your favorite podcasting platform. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour. Out. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving iron.